Walter Alstahl is a founding father of the circular economy and founder director of the Product Life Institute, the oldest established consultancy in Europe devoted to developing sustainable strategies and policies. He is senior research fellow at the Circular Economy Research Center, École des Ponts Business School, and visiting professor in the Department of Engineering and Physical Sciences, University of Surrey. He is also a full member of the Club of Rome. He was awarded degrees of Dr. Honoris Causa by the University of Surrey, l'Université de Montreal, and the 2020 Thornton Medal, Institute of Materials, Minerals, and Mining. He is the author of The Circular Economy, A User's Guide. Welcome to One Planet Podcast in the Creative Process. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure and a privilege to be here. So we're so excited to speak with you today. We've been reading your book, The Circular Economy, A User's Guide, and you're recognized as one of the key people who formulated the whole concept of the circular economy. You coined the term cradle to cradle. Yes, because in the 1980s, somebody came up with the term cradle to grave. And I mocked myself about this by saying this was a marketing upgrade for grave diggers, because what we need is cradle to cradle. In other words, you have to close the loops. Yeah, it really helps reorientate our thinking. I mean, at that stage, it must have been so difficult to get people to listen. I think they have no choice but to listen now. And you outlined really helped us understand the circular economy in your book, which the co-president of the Club of Rome, Anders Wickman, if the world had had the courage to listen to Walter Stahl long ago, the linear production model would long be gone in favor of circular material flows. And he went on to say that your book is a wonderful introduction into the performance economy and an economy in the service of life. So I think that is a beautiful distillation of what you outline in your book. But for listeners, could you share with us a brief passage from your book? Well, yes, just to answer the quote you said from Anders, 1980s or end of 1970s, I did a study on preventing waste in the domain of products. In for a German part of the German government. And then the objective from the experts was that you cannot prevent waste with products. You can only prevent waste in production. And so you can see that was what 30 years ago, the focus was still on production and people simply ignored the use phase of products, of goods. Now, the problem we face today is that the circular economy evolves through two major shifts from necessity to solution of last resort, that's the first one, and to default option. Now, the solution of last resort is when we drown in waste, and then we have to find ways out. The default option has to be built on a more philosophical motivation. And Pierre-Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, the French poet and aviator, very nicely said this in his unfinished book, Citadel. I'll read you the English translation. When you want to build a ship, do not begin by gathering wood, cutting boards and organizing work gangs, but rather create the longing for the sea, awaken within men the desire for the vast and endless sea. And I think this is what we are failing today in the discussion about sustainability, about climate change, we look for measures, we look for tools, we look for all kind of mechanical things, but we do not give people the longing to become sustainable, to change to a more sustainable lifestyle. And this is 
including policymakers, this is, I think, the big step we have to do is people should look at the circular economy as something they wish to participate, they wish to be part of, not as something they have to do. Exactly. I mean, I don't want to say a spiritual element, but it definitely has a community element, this sense of being connected. To really participate in a circular economy, you need to know all aspects of society. You're not this little isolated worker. You have to know how it all works together. I believe that the circular economy is a bottom-up development, not the top-down. And at the moment, there are hundreds of bottom-up developments that can be summarized as intelligent decentralization. So it's in crowd finance, crowd mapping, it's robotized, it's 3D printing, it's micro bakeries, micro breweries, photovoltaics, micro hydro, electricity. So all these new developments are basically intelligent decentralization. This unfortunately is what, what's happening at the moment in Europe due to the supply problems with the natural gas. Now, nobody talks about climate change anymore or CO2 emissions. The only thing now is to get through the next winter without power cuts. And so several countries are recommissioning coal power stations, in Germany even brown coal power stations, which is about the worst you can do because they close down their nuclear power stations, most of them. So at the moment, that this short-term focus of policymakers for society to survive next winter will probably push us back with regard to CO2 emissions by several years. And we need a vision for the future. And the vision must be long-term. And then we have to submit all our wants and wishes to fit into this future. Yes, it's true. I mean, love must be realistic. I hope that we aren't set back so much People always think about their immediate needs. I remember having a conversation with Pino right at the beginning of the DG of Energy, as you know, the European Commission, right at the beginning of the war in Ukraine, and saying that seeing the positive in terms of it makes us accelerate those transitions. I mean, yes. yeah, you know, we don't want to go through this again. Let's go for net zero. And you're going to tell us the very many ways that we can reach that and really transition to clean energy and the many elements of the circular economy. I also want to discuss the foundation of the Product Life Institute. But before that, just outline for us four stages of the circular economy. Yes, it's a good question. The circularity, of course, has existed in nature for a long time. Actually, nature circularity is by evolution. There is no plan, there is no liability, there is no preferences. It's simply the cycles such as marine tides, CO2 and water cycles, plants and animals. And basically by by evolution, the best solution wins. Also, there is no waste. That material becomes food for other animals or plants. Now, early mankind survived by depending on these local natural resources, sharing a non-monetary chaotic symbiosis dominated by nature. Then this poverty or necessity-based society changed when mankind, humankind used science to overcome shortages of everything. In other words, the Anthropocene with nuclear energy, petrochemicals, metal alloys, we became independent from nature, but we 
overlook the fact that these new man-made anthropogenic resources or synthetic resources were unknown to nature, so nature could not deal with it. And that means that we, mankind, has to take responsibility for it. So more and more important is are the invisible quality cycles of this immaterial world, cultural values, sharing and caring, responsibility, even liability for by manufacturers of products and materials for what they are doing. Because we have to get away from this liability, uh, legacy waste of the Anthropocene. Now, the future, I hope, will see nature and man living in synergy, or otherwise mankind may have a big problem. And synergy means that in the future, we need intelligent solutions. That means we need circular sciences, we need circular energy, we need circular chemistry, circular metallurgy, so that we really close the value that the loops, the material and object loops, and we have to make what we have, we have to make it last. On a personal level, I always tell people, enjoy. We have to learn to enjoy the use of the belongings we have and take care of them. So instead of replacing something, if the manufacturer sells it, tells you we have a better, better, bigger, faster, safer, greener smartphone or car, we have to resist and say, no, I have a car or I have a smartphone. It fits my purpose. So you may have a better one, but the one I have is sufficient. And this is fighting against this marketing push from manufacturers, especially for young people, is a very tough fight. Yes, the irresistible newness and novelty that our whole capitalist system is founded upon. I don't want to sidetrack from your main projects, but I believe you really are one for reusing and repairing. I believe you really kept your 1969 car going for how many years? Actually, I have two, two cars from 1969, a Toyota, which I've now given to my younger son, and the Jaguar. And of course, both of these cars were never produced to last that long. So the service life extension or product life extension comes from caring for your belongings and from finding people who can repair it, who can remanufacture components, who can help you. And that needs conviction because the easy solution would be to well get rid of it because, I mean, why should you spend time on finding somebody to repair a carburetor or something like this. But it's the same for clocks. It's the same for computers. Whenever something breaks down, we should take it at the same time that we, it took us to buy something. We should try to either give it away to somebody who can use it or have it repaired so we can continue to use it. And it's the same for textiles. It's the same for shoes. But of course, that also cuts out fashion. I basically reduce the goods to their function. And I don't care if my whatever is out of fashion, because normally 20 years later in clothing, the fashion comes back. Suddenly you're back in fashion. And with things like cars, especially cars, visible objects, a 50-year-old object is something that everybody would like to have. But people don't realize you can't buy a 50-year-old car, the only way you can produce it 
is by looking after the cars you have and then wait for, for a few decades until it reaches a mature age. But now anybody who sees, especially young people, when they see my son who is 35 with his 52-year-old Toyota, that he is an absolute, he's the king of the road. I mean, people can't believe that this car is still working. And I don't know the exact, I mean, in terms of carbon footprint and stuff, I'm so curious about that. And in getting rid of it. Well, getting rid of it is the current footprint of a car is mainly in the manufacturing. If you do it through dismantling, it's very labor intensive. So it's very expensive. If you put it in a shredder, then you lose all the value of the material that went into the car. The use phase is basically dealt with by driving as little as possible. Because you, if you do the calculation, producing a new modern car takes about four tons of oil equivalent. So if you drive your car for, let's say, 300,000 kilometers, then after 300,000 kilometers, you actually reach the break-even point where your car starts to use, produce more CO2 than if you had bought a new one. But of course, if you drive 300,000 kilometers in a year, which taxi driver, for example, then it makes sense to either upgrade, technologically upgrade the car. You can change the engine. If you have a diesel engine, you can change that for compressed natural gas. That is done. All the taxis in Tokyo or in Dublin are converted diesel to LNG cars. So we can do it. But why should you do it? It's, it's again, who tells you you can do it? And then you have to motivate yourself to do it. So the, it's the same thing. We have the solutions, but we cannot know of all the available solutions. And even if we know about them, how can we know who can do it, how much it will cost? And in the long term, what's in it for me? Because that's basically the question we always have to ask. And so you touched on there, we're facing resource scarcity and resources have not been ethically priced. We have to really consider what those true costs are. Can you describe the founding of the Product Life Institute and how you work with different economic actors to bring about those changes in our economy and in society? Well, by training, I'm an architect, not an economist. And I work for an American research foundation in the 1970s when we had the oil price crisis and unemployment in most European countries. And I knew from my activity in building that renovating an existing building is more labor intensive, but uses only few energy, little materials. And so I thought this might be true for other products too. And I managed to convince the then called Commission of the European Communities, to give me a research funds to study the potential for substituting manpower for energy. So basically, my driver was job creation and energy consumption reduction. The environmental benefits of longer service life basically come as a collateral, come automatically with it. So if you double the lifetime, the service life of, a, of any object, car or a house, if you double the lifetime, you reduce the input of resources and the output of waste by 50% without changing anything at the product. So the key element is time. We have to include time in our economic 
optimization. And in terms of when you started and were trying to introduce these concepts of the circular economy, I can only imagine how people responded then. But they're beginning to listen. But at the same time, how do you incentivize that? How can we really rethink our capitalist model? How, what incentives or negotiating devices do you find are most useful for bringing people around? There are several. The key is that at the point of sale, you buy the property, the ownership, but also the liability for objects. So after the point of sale, the owner user is in charge. And that is you and me, that's all of us. So for individuals, that means looking, enjoying the use of and taking care of your belongings. For economic actors, it means owning and operating objects to care for the stock of objects and materials in their possession. But then, of course, this works for production tools, for example, in case of manufacturers, but not for the goods they produce. So the way they can change into the circular economy is by selling goods as a service, by renting goods, operational leasing, that there are several strategies, because then the economic actor will profit from the longer service life and he will optimize cost reduce the cost of operation and maintenance. He will try to avoid waste and risks because these now reduce his profits so that the objective of the economic actor completely changes away from optimizing production to optimizing the use and the income from use. And governments, policymakers have a very important role because what can they do? First thing is don't tax labor. The circular economy is more labor intensive than the linear industrial economy, but uses much fewer materials and little energy. So by not taxing labor, but taxing unwanted things, you already give a big boost to the circular economy, or you make production more expensive. The second thing is, again, at the point of sale, a public procurement takes on the liability for risks and waste of the things they buy, if it's infrastructure or buildings or objects, they can avoid this liability by buying objects as a service. And there's already a number of bridges and tunnels that are, don't belong to the state. The state enables and allows somebody to build a bridge and collects a toll, but it's not the state's responsibility. And then, of course, it's obvious that the longer this bridge will last, and less maintenance it needs, the, the operator will increase it, its profits. So you completely change the economic optimization focused on reducing, preventing, optimizing use, and the production becomes secondary. It's really exciting. I wonder how, when you may be collaborating with America, for instance, where socialism, the idea, you know, it's nice to communally own something and be taken care of and to have that security. But even to use the word socialism was like a, such a bad word. So are there other ways of phrasing it, like a co-op or co-ownership or something that helps? There's certain mental blockages that people have about that. Well, 2,000 years ago, Aristotle said that real wealth lies in use, not ownership. And I think this is what, never mind if it's rental apartments, rental cars, rental planes, whatever, people realize that if you want to have an easy life, then never buy something, but rent something. And this is already the case if you fly from one place to another in the States, you normally don't buy an aircraft, you buy a ticket 
to fly. In other words, you buy the performance to get you from A to B. And it's the same for many other products, washing machines. At the moment, people don't see the benefits of not owning things. And my advice is always any product that increases in value is worth owning. So if you buy a car, keep it for 50 years and it will be more, the value will be higher than when you bought it. But if you buy a smartphone and you keep it for 20 years or 10 years, five years, the value is nil. So therefore, why should you lose all this money? Then rent it and rent the cheapest one, even if it's not very fashionable, if you are concerned about costs. And so think money, but money for you and spend the least possible amount of money. And that is normally renting something only when you need it or car rental, car sharing. It's got nothing to do with socialism. It's pure egocentric economics. It's my money. And why should I spend it on buying things that I don't need? All I want is the use of these things. Yes. And it really invites us as well to rethink our current models and in terms of globalization and relocalization. Can you share some examples where this kind of thinking is being implemented and how we might rethink these issues? Well, the whole globalization economy of scale of the linear economy was based on moving labor-intensive production to the places where the lowest cost of labor was. Now with robots, it has completely changed, but it hasn't hit most manufacturers yet. Robots, a certain type of robots cost the same thing in Asia or the US or in Europe. So the cost is the same. So in order to reduce production costs, you have to reduce all the other costs, transport, liability. And so it's better to have one robot in every town or in every region in a small building and then using 3D print and digital technology to feed the robot, to print, to produce whatever the customer needs on site rapidly. So you don't have any spare parts anymore. Spare part management is the most expensive part of manufacturing. And you are much faster than if you have to ship something from Shanghai or wherever. So robots typically have changed it's called reshoring production. And because it's using digital technologies instead of using cheap long distance transport, and it's faster, it's more economic. And of course, it creates local employment. The same for remanufacturing. If you have a broken, let's take a, a car. Normally, a car becomes useless because the engine or another key element doesn't work anymore. Now, you can either change the whole car or you can simply remanufacture, which is the repair with technological updating of this key component. If you look at the economics of remanufacturing, and this has been shown from Xerox to Renault to General Electric, a lot of people never believed it and then experienced it themselves. The return of investment of a remanufacturing plant is five times the ROI of a manufacturing plant for the same. So if you want to make money as an entrepreneur, do remanufacturing, not production. And then the Caterpillar engines is a key example. When you start doing remanufacturing, you realize that you can also design diesel engine for easy remanufacturing. And then you make even more money. And then you are even closer to your clients. So it's a virtuous loop, but you cannot see this loop from the outside. You have to do it to believe it. 
And this is in many of the business cases, business models of the circular economy, and especially the performance economy. Once you do it, you can see how you can permanently improve it. You cannot see it from the outside. And I think that education must be also key to this. And I, for people to really understand how they can be a part of it, it almost comes a little bit too late when you're you know, entering university. I think that for every stakeholder to be on board, it would be useful for that to begin at an early age. On a macro level, people is a renewable resource. It doesn't grow on trees, but it is a renewable resource. And it's the only resource with a qualitative edge. We can actually greatly improve it by education, vocational training. And if we don't use it, these skills will rapidly degrade. So we are spending a lot of money educating people, but then nation states have a moral oblig obligation, I think, then to use these people in a productive way. And uh, when, when also in the States, when in my generation learned or did it by curiosity, we took everything apart, clocks and gearboxes, engines. And I know that in the States, it was very popular in the 50s, 60s. In Eastern Germany, it was with the Trabant, with the famous, uh, very simple car. And now with the electronics, these do-it-yourself skills have been largely lost because electromechanical things, you can repair yourself or easily find somebody to do it. As soon as you have electronic elements, you basically cannot repair it. And then the temptation or the need even is that you have to replace it because you don't know. There's always somebody who can repair it somewhere in the world. Ask Kyle from ilfixit.com. But it needs an additional effort. It needs engaging yourself, motivating yourself. Throwing it away is the easiest for the owner user, easiest way to solve the problem and buying a new one. Hello. My name is Yan Songli. I am a Geography PhD student at the University of California, Davis, and I'm also a sustainable podcast producer for the creative process. As someone interested in sustainability, it is an honor to listen to this fantastic exchange of ideas from Mr. Walter Hell, one of the earliest pioneers in formulating the circular economy. With social and environmental degradation being the most critical challenge of the 21st century, a circular economy will surely be one of the key components to our solution. There are a few critical points in this exchange that I found to be most interesting. For instance, when discussing the circular economy, many debates that I have heard are geared towards the disposal of a product, and great efforts are put into recycling and recapturing the resources embedded within the waste. However, Mr. Stahel refocuses on the importance of the use of a product in a circular system, and emphasized on meeting people's need for the use of a product than the ownership of the product itself. A good example of this mentality can be found in many renting services, such as bike sharing. Through these services, the focus turns to fulfilling people's need rather than want of ownership, thus reducing demand and the environmental impact that comes with it. This focus on leasing and sharing speaks to a more significant issue in our consumer society. As mentioned during the discussion, the want for constant new product is very much conditioned into our social consciousness. Part of the solution to this problem is, of course, the education of the society. However, this transition of social consciousness must be supported with a necessary circular infrastructure, such as readily available repair shops, 
and the renting services providers mentioned above. However, it may be essential to consider this business model's social implications. If people are mainly renting and sharing through a few large conglomerates, then the socioeconomic inequities of our time will persist. To avoid this outcome, the new sharing services that will support a sustainable and circular economic system, all these new ideas speak to more than just simple technical problems, but rather a social transition, a new way to organize the production, distribution, use, and circulation of goods and services within a society. Yet when looking at the literature on the circular economy, it is not hard to see that it has been depoliticized, and social aspects are not frequently discussed. Many of circular economy's ideas operate more like tools within a pre-existing social and economic system rather than a new comprehensive system in and of itself. Maybe it is time to reconsider circular economy's social, economic, and political implications and to move beyond simple life cycle assessment and environmental impact reports and into the realm like social and economic justice. Now, let us go back to the interview. Thank you for sharing your ideas with us, Mr. Stahal. They're really interesting. And one topic that always come up when I'm talking to my friend about the circular economy is the importance of sustainable energy because it is impossible to build a truly circular and regenerative economy without transitioning into a net zero energy system. However, the means that we generate renewable energy, such as solar PV cells and wind turbines, are also built on a linear system. So how should we make a transition to a circular renewable energy system? Well, the problem is energy is only one thing. What we really, we have to solve three problems. We have to create the low waste society through incentives to change individual behavior from consumer to user through loss and waste prevention, intelligent resource management. We also have to create the low carbon society by preserving the water, electricity, CO2 emissions embodied in physical assets or through innovation in green electricity and circular energy. And the third challenge, which is probably the biggest, we have to, we have to create a low anthropogenic mass society by preserving these existing stocks of infrastructure, buildings, equipment, vehicles, and objects. The only strategy I know that can fulfill these three challenges is a circular industrial economy. Now, the last point, the low anthropogenic mass society, is simply because some years ago, the rapidly growing anthropogenic mass has become bigger than the world biomass. And that, of course, means we are destroying the biomass because we have a limited planet and we are destroying biodiversity and replacing it with a synthetic man-made materials and objects. And this in the long term means we are killing ourselves. So we have to stop producing anthropogenic mass, except in countries that don't have yet a, a, a sufficient infrastructures for education, health, living, sufficient food to feed the population. But it's very difficult to reduce, to convince even governments that they should stop producing new motorways and find better ways to use the existing motorways or airports or whatever. The energy question, there is the trick to green energy is green hydrogen. But to produce green hydrogen, you need green electricity, which can be nuclear or hydro or solar or wind power. So the key is really the sustainable electricity. That then allows us to produce green hydrogen because water, the other component, 
is the world consists to 90, 70% of water on the planet surface. So there's no, nowhere there's a shortage of water. And for example, in steel making, we can replace coke, the iron making by hydrogen. But we can also in steel recycling, we can use electric arc furnaces, which, so we can need the green electricity. And steel is really the key material because every product either uses steel or is made on equipment made of steel. So if we don't manage the transition to green steel, we shall never have green objects or a green industrial economy. Concrete and asphalt are the other two massive material consumption units and waste elements. These are more difficult because it's more difficult to reuse the ceramic elements. And I came about a few articles that discuss some of the potential loopholes within circular economy, and one of which focuses on a circular economy rebound effect. I wonder if you have noticed any of these side effects, and in your opinion, how should we compensate for them? Well, I know the rebound effect is often quoted, but let's take photovoltaic panels. You want to put photovoltaic panels on your roof to save electricity costs. Well, first you have to pay the initial cost. So the rebound effect comes after 15 or 20 years. But for the first 15 or 20 years, you, you will have more capital costs to compensate for the electricity costs that you save. And only after that time, you actually have a rebound effect. And of course, it's the same with a refrigerator or energy saving car. Um, you first have to spend money. There are very few cases nowadays where a rebound effect comes from lower costs of electricity or lower costs of food, lower costs of whatever product. At the moment, material prices since 1900, commodity prices have gone up and up. Now in Europe with the crisis, the, the Ukraine, Ukrainian war problems, everything is going up. The house prices, the electricity prices, food prices, fuel prices. And so the problem is certainly that today for many people, they are forced or they apply the circular economy not to save money, but simply because they can no longer afford to buy new things. Or for example, buy good food. They have to buy the cheapest things. So we don't have the rebound effect. We have the effect that our quality of life is going down because for many people in Europe, because they can no longer afford to buy quality items. And I want to go back to something that you had mentioned before, new technologies and 3D printing and machine learning and AI. How can these technologies be used to harness managing the waste and transitioning to a circular economy, not just in, in terms of fabrication, but AI is good for counting things rapidly and assessing, making sure that it's well managed, like a kind of governance. Well, the big problem is the legacy waste of the Anthropocene, be it plastic in the oceans, nanoplastics in drinking water, even in our blood. These things are very difficult to get rid of. And certainly we should have never allowed it to happen. We should have prevented it. So the government's issue is who is in charge and who is responsible for it or who is liable? Because the difference between responsibility and liability is responsibility ends up in the ESG reporting that journalists read. The liability ends up in the financial accounts of a company that investors read. And the one thing investors hate is a, li a liability that is increasing every year and has no fixed dateline. So therefore, if we 
impose the take-back liability on manufacturers of objects and materials, this will force the economic actors to become part of the circular economy, not only to survive, but to be profitable. At the moment, this outsourcing of the costs of waste and liability to the state is almost an incentive not to be responsible, not to be suddenly liable. So sometimes we have to change some of the key elements in the legislation. Exactly. And on that point of the microplastics, I mean, it seems kind of crazy to me that Coca-Cola is the sponsor of COP27. Well, in British pubs, normally you can buy a Coke. Simply, they have these, these pistols where they can give you any drink because they have the concentrates below the counter and they simply mix the concentrate with water. So we don't really need to buy bottled water or bottled anything. What we need is to drink. And refill containers and large refill containers should become a must. But of course, the, the small containers, the small packaging is linked to the marketing, to the image. We go back to the bigger, better, sweeter, whatever, greener things. And if we do not allow somebody like Coke to sell the small bottles, but only to sell the concentrate to pubs or to your private households, you can do it at home too. That completely changes their business model. You will no longer have the, at Christmas, the Coke truck that drives through the winter countryside and everybody cheers. No, you will just have a small van driving through with a, with a concentrate. So at the moment, companies like Coca-Cola or Nestle or Danone, they basically transport packaging and water, not what they are selling. They are selling the concentrate. And bottled water is a nonsense because, except in less developed countries for sanitary reasons, but in industrialized countries, you can always find local water or local bottled water. You don't have to drink Perrier in New York. You can take an American local brand of mineral water. Yeah, I'd like to see in practice more about buying the concentrate version. Could you just describe that a little bit more so that we can be cutting down on the packaging and single-use bottles? Well, it's the same thing, the stuff you use for washing powder. The only argument in favor of the diluted thing is that the risk factor. If you have concentrated things, you have to have a better supervision because if anybody drinks the concentrate without diluting it, it can cause harm. The same with washing powder, concentrates. So the easy way to escape these risks is to dilute everything to a level where you drink it without the thing killing you. So it's partly producer liability. It's also partly if you buy a five-gallon drink or a one-gallon whiskey bottle or bourbon, whatever, or washing liquid detergent, then you have the feeling that you, you get a lot of stuff for your money. If you buy a concentrate that is a tenth of that volume for the same price, you have the feeling that you are take, being taken for a ride. And so it's, it's again the, the consumer buyer that has to learn that, has to see what use value he gets out of the concentrate or the diluted thing and not be cheated with the fact that you get more for the same amount of money if you buy the diluted thing rather than the concentrate. You have already touched on some aspects to my next question, but it's just that when I am researching circular economy, a lot of the focus are around technical innovations, but we shouldn't also lose sight on the necessary social innovations that are required 
to help build a circular economy. So in your opinion, what are some of the social innovations that we should prioritize? The, the social innovation we need is in Europe, we have repair cafes. In other words, it's the circular society. It's the non-monetary side of the circularity. And swap where you can change clothing, tools, you can lend to your neighbors, you can share them. We, you may need some social control, but basically we should give the same access to the goods, to the objects for everybody. But that also needs that people have to reduce their needs, not, not the wants. The needs, we have to make sure everybody can fulfill. But at the moment, most people look at their wants. And I think it was Gandhi who said there is enough resource for everybody's needs, but not for everybody's wants. So this distinction becomes very important. You really need somebody, then you should have it. If you just want it, because especially with fashion and food, then think again, is it really a need? Another one of my questions, which is more relevant to my current research, is on the social economy of food systems, because the most precious resource on Earth is our water and our soil, because without these, life would not exist on this planet. However, our current food systems are linear and extractive, and there's a lot of food waste. So in your opinion, how should we advance our food system towards a more circular model? And what area of the food system should we focus on? Well, the food system is following the track of the economy of scale. So, for example, in Europe, you can buy avocados that are produced in Peru, but avocados need a lot of water, like orange trees. So in villages in Peru now, people no longer have enough drinking water because the priority of the water is to go to either bottling water or the avocados plants. So we should give up this nonsense because then, of course, these avocados are travel 20,000 miles, 20,000 kilometers to come to Europe. So we should try to produce also food-wise everything we need as locally as possible. And that also means that we may no longer get strawberries at Christmas or in South America, strawberries in, in July. So again, what do we really need to live? The quality of life. And very often, re reduce, renounce, reuse are the key strategies of the circular economy. Renounce, reduce, reuse. During one of our previous episodes with the degrowth organization, we also talked about circular economy and we attribute this need for constantly new product to a growth-focused economic system. But um, there are currently a lot of enthusiasm around constructing a post-growth economic system. So in your opinion, how does circular economy fit into this conversation? The circular economy is maintaining values and purity of materials, functionality of objects. So it's managing stocks. And the, the growth element is, is a flow element. We basically, when the economy grows, we think we are better off. When the economy shrinks, here we have a disaster. But we should measure the, the wealth. We should measure the stocks. So in other words, if the stocks increase of natural capital or manufactured capital, whatever, cultural capital, if the national stocks increase, then we are better off. Then we have growth, even without a resource consumption. If the stocks decrease, despite big production flow, then we are getting poorer. And in many areas today, we have in many economic areas, we have 
growth in the production, but if you look at the, the wealth, at the stocks, then we are actually getting poorer through this production. Yes. And what does the circular economy mean for developing countries and how is that modified and adapted to their economies? Developing countries. And that is a very important thing if you look at CO2 emissions. The global CO2 emissions should go down to zero growth or to zero, full stop. But that means that the developed countries, the industrialized countries have to go not to 1990 levels, has to go to 1950 levels because we must leave the developing countries space to build the necessary infrastructure to increase their quality of life, education, health, mobility, all these things. And the circular economy, many regions in less developed countries actually already have a circular economy, but it's a circular economy of scarcity, poverty, and therefore people don't see it and people hate it. So we have to give these people the opportunity to develop to at least to a level where they can cover their needs. But then we have to convince ourselves and them that to limit their wants. But all countries should be able to cover their needs. And for that, in less developed countries, they will have to build infrastructure, buildings, food systems, storage, all these things. So the less developed countries need to develop. They need growth. But that means that the developed the industrialized countries have to drastically reduce their flows of production and resource consumption. Yes. And we've been discussing these broad frameworks and the evolutions that need to take place. Could you discuss a bit of the specifics about the organizations that you've worked with, the Ellen MacArthur Foundation or the European Commission, the Geneva Association, and how do you move those ideas forward through those organizations? Well, the, the problem is to Within these organizations, normally are teaching the converted. So the problem is, how do you carry it outside? And carrying outside basically means education, teaching, conferences, publications, and then reaching the people concerned. That's the big, also with sustainable finance. At the moment, if you look at impact financing, anybody who has not invested money in the oil or energy business or the weapon business, is losing out. So we have to basically also reverse the economy so that investing in stocks, investing in operation maintenance activities and service activities becomes more profitable than investing in resource consumption or production flows. But that is a huge problem. And I don't know if we will ever get there because at the moment we are running a race against the climate change with the permafrost, defrosting, with wildfires in all countries. All these things produce a lot of methane in the case of the tundra defrosting or CO2 emissions in the case of wildfires. And I think the global warming will soon take on a life of its own. And of course, then we have a real problem. But there's still time, but we are running out of time. So it becomes this urgency becomes very important. And I'm not sure if the next COP meeting will be able to even just convince the participating governments of this urgency. Let's forget any excuses. We now have to switch. We have to change. Yes. I, and looking to COP27, what are some of those you know, most urgent priorities? Because you have to just cling on to the ones that we have to do now. <laughs> Absolutely. And that means for industrialized countries, we will have to 
make sacrifices. We will have to give up part of our lifestyle, our consumption, going on holidays to the other side of the world for two or three days. Of course, the productive side is looking for other solutions, such as thin fuels, new low-carbon fuels. But the problem is we have to renounce, we have to reduce and make use of what we have rather than keep on producing new stuff to replace existing stuff. Well, we have to sacrifice this. I think we cannot delay that. But I like it also when it's also framed in a positive light. And right in you know Switzerland where you are, there's, we spoke with Bertrand Picard and the Solar Impulse Foundation. And I love to hear about all those solutions that can maybe bring people on board who are in a less, they don't have to feel there's a sacrifice, they can see the positivity. Okay, but if we talk about technology, the remanufacturing with technological upgrading of goods is the fastest way to bring new technologies to the market because you only replace the component where the progress is actually happening. Whereas we need these lighthouse elements like solar impulse, but in the next 20 years, they will not solve our problems. Exactly. We have to be judicious. We have to enjoy life. I love the Product Life Institute, but there is life and there is product. We focus on the life. We don't need so many products. Absolutely. <laughs> so as you think about the future and the kind of planet that we're leaving, the next generation, who for you have been some important teachers or life lessons? And what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? That is the most difficult question because it's basically the young people that decide what they want. In parts of Europe, now the young people, for example, some people no longer have a smartphone because they say no Nokia is completely sufficient for phones. And if I want to go on the internet, I use a tablet or a computer. So if the young generation can really see what they need and not what they want, also with regard to clothing, and then we have a chance, they have a chance to create their own future. But it is really the education, it is giving this wish, this want, like Santiago Exuberi said, that the wish to, to go sailing, the wish to become sustainable, and then you adapt the way you live. It doesn't work the other way. We have to convince the young generation that they become sustainable lifestyles and then they impose it on us. I don't think it works the other way. You're right. It is bottom up. But I think you've shared a lot of top down to in this conversation and your life's work. So thank you, Walter Stahl, for awakening in us the desire to long for the vast and endless sea and showing us that another world is possible through your commitment to bringing about a circular economy that sustains all life and improves systems for the betterment of society and sharing your insights into public and private partnerships and policy so that we can protect our planet and future generations. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast. Thank you, Mia, for giving me the opportunity. All the best for all your endeavors. The One Plan Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Yan Zongli, with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interview producer on this podcast was Yan Zongli. Digital media coordinators are Jacob A. Preisler and Megan Heckenbarth. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.